Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Indeed, friends, today is the day. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. It is always, uh, just I just counted a great privilege that you include us in your day. And so whatever you are facing today, we are facing it with you. We're facing it with you in prayer, um, with confidence that God is going to be God. He never fails. God never fails to be who he is. You can count on that. You and I can count on that, absolutely. And whatever we're facing today, we can count on God to be God. And that means that uh, God who is love and God who is perfectly just and God who is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and God who is working out uh, the gospel in the context of human history over which there is this amazing redemptive arc, um, you live in a personal universe. And so anything today that begins to feel impersonal or where you are made to feel as if you are less than the magnificent, um, created in the image of God, man or woman that you are. I want you to put your shoulders back and stick out your chin a little bit and be sure the world knows that you know that God is and that God has spoken and that God has acted in the context of human history in the person of Jesus Christ at a place called Calvary on a cross. And that that same Jesus having died uh, in an atoning sacrifice for our sins, was raised from the dead. And that because of his death and resurrection, you and I not only have the promise and possibility of eternal life forevermore, but life here on earth right now on this day is radically different because of the reality of the cross. Jesus does not just liberate us from the penalty of sin and death. Jesus liberates us from the power of sin in this life. And so today, the power of sin might simply be um, the, the devil trying to work a negative idea about you into your head. And you need to resist that. Like, right? You need to be the person who says, you know what, devil? Mm-mm, no way. I, mm-mm. Every one of my thoughts is captive to Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of my, of my mind and the Lord of my heart and the Lord of my life. And so, you know, get off my lawn. Like, I, I, it's, there are just some days that I just want to tell Satan, you know what, get off my lawn. Uh, and so that's not, you know, because I'm a grouchy old woman yet, but uh, it's because I am a Christian who is a, kingdom, uh, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven living in the midst of the kingdoms of this world where Satan thinks he's got a playground. And he thinks he's got access, and he thinks he's got privilege. No, he does not. This is God's creation, and this is God's gospel uh, universe. And so, I don't know, maybe you needed to hear that today. I need to remind myself of it frequently. Um, I'm just going to tell Satan today, you know what, get off my lawn. All right, next up, Dr. Brett Nick from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. He and I are going to talk about all kinds of things, antidepressants, the flu, Uh, And then we're also going to talk about these physician-assisted suicide laws across the country that are really causing just tremendous grief for those with disabilities. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Dr. Brett Nick, he is returning for another conversation from his perspective as a Christian who also works as an ER doctor. Welcome back. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, good morning. We're, we're thrilled to have you here. So uh, in a, on a personal note, I ran into my ER doctor uh, friend at church in the Narthex or the gathering area, whatever people call it now, uh, on Sunday. And I said, hey, you got to listen on Tuesday because I'm having one of your colleagues on air. And so anyway, if you ever run into Clay Smith at anything you ever do, I mean, he's here as an ER doctor at Vanderbilt, but I told him, I'm like, I just straight out, I'm like, okay, you guys would be like fast friends. So there you go. This is my brokering of like doctor friendships. Absolutely. I tell you, emergency medicine is a small family. So I actually, in time, I'm certain we would see each other. Yeah. So you guys would really instantly like one another. So there you go. All right. Let's talk about the effectiveness or ineffectiveness, relative effectiveness of antidepressants. Let's start with this. What is an antidepressant? Who should be on them? And then how widely prescribed are they in the U.S. today? Well, that's a great question. So antidepressants are medications that are medications that functionally work on your brain. And there is physiologic and evidence that supports perhaps there is an imbalance for some people that have issues with depression where certain neurotransmitters or chemicals that are in the brain are either uh, in a need of having additional supplement or finding a better balance because of underlying conditions that a patient may have. Now, it's fascinating about that when you look at the antidepressants. The question you ask is who should be on them uh, is sometimes called into question. There was a recent article that I know we, uh, we had discussed prior to which really looked at all the data since 1990 all the way through June of this year and simply asked the question, are antidepressants effective compared to placebo, meaning a, a medication that somebody may be given that has no medical value? And when they looked at this study, the researchers simply came up with the concept of this. They said the benefits of antidepressants seem to be minimal and possibly without clear advantage uh, for those that have a major depressive disorder. And while antidepressants are routinely used within our society and really across the globe at this point in time, we all know that they have not only potentially a benefit, but they have huge secondary side effects that can be harmful indeed. Okay. And those secondary harmful side effects would look like what? Well, a lot of them actually may actually worsen the underlying conditions. So somebody who has a depressive mm. disorder, certain types of antidepressants actually have an increased risk of suicide uh, and actually worsening issues of their major depressive disorders. Uh, they can also have uh, components where you may increase anxiety instead of decreasing anxiety. And of course, they have some of the ones that may affect your metabolism, may affect your ability from a eating perspective and or secondary habit forming processes. Uh, one of the greatest challenges that we have at this point in time is, again, getting back to what is the root cause for the depression? And sometimes that's the biggest challenge. And in medicine, we many times, especially in the emergency department, it's difficult to have the time to have the dialogue to really get down to it where it is something that may have happened at someone's uh, childhood years or perhaps when they were much younger. Maybe it was a, a traumatic issue when you think about our post-traumatic stress disorders uh, from individuals that are coming through and really trying to understand the coping mechanisms by which they have them. Certainly there may be physiologic issues where there's an imbalance, but I do fear that many times we jumped into a prescriptive solution rather than actually addressing the underlying issue at hand. All right, we have uh, we have listeners asking where to find the article, so I'm just going to tell them uh, here. It is ebm. dot 
bmj.com, and I know that is complicated. So if you just follow me on Twitter or if you send me a text at 877-933-2484, I'll just send you the direct link to the article that we are uh, that we are talking about here uh, about antidepressants um, and this just evidence-based answers to the question of how effective are they. Um, so, so Brett, uh, when we talk about depression and we talk about antidepressants, am I right in saying that we are we are talking about a subcategory of a larger conversation we're having in the culture about mental health? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the subcategory of mental health gets into a lot of different components of things. Uh, sometimes it's maladaptive behaviors. Sometimes it's substance abuse disorders. Uh, sometimes there is a predilection uh, within uh, someone's genetic code that leads into certain areas. And those things make it much more complex. But the reality is, yes, we do. And I don't think anyone would disagree that if we look at even from our societal perspective that we have a substantial decline from a moral and ethical perspective of things. And many times the choices that we make sometimes can actually drive into this process issue where all of a sudden we've dug ourselves into a hole, whether that be depression, whether that be mental health uh, challenges that are very, very difficult to get out on our own. And really we need to be embracing this population that many times is forgotten. Mm, Absolutely. All right. uh, Dr. Brett, Nick and I are going to be right back. We're going to take a brief break. Uh, You guys can check out the Christian Christian Medical and Dental Association uh, during the break if you want to. When we come back, we're going to talk about the fact that it is flu season. And, uh, you know, I'm going to ask the kinds of questions that I always ask about, hmm, well, what uh, what are we supposed to be doing and who should be getting a flu vaccine and on and on and on. So my anti-vaxxers, go ahead. You can start texting me now at 877-933-2484 because the question and the conversation about the flu vaccine is up next. All right, continuing my conversation with Dr. Brett Nick. He is a an ER doctor. He also works with the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You can find them at CMDA. Oh, I see. I know. I follow them at CMDA National on Twitter. Is it just CMDA online? Like, let me, I'm going to type it in. CMDA. This is how I, you probably know off the top of your head. There we go. CMDA.org, Christian Medical and Dental Association. Okay. Um, so let's talk about flu season. First of all, let's just remind everybody what the flu is and how we can avoid getting it. Well, it's a great topic. And let me position it this way. Many times we forget about influenza and we think it's just another virus. And yes, that's exactly what it is. It is a virus. But position it this way. In 1918, the H1N1 virus that year, the influenza, killed more than 500 million people worldwide and more than, or probably 50 million people worldwide, but more than 500 million people had become infected during the course of that year. And it's something that happens every year. The flu virus comes and goes, and we see transitions each year. Because keep in mind, it typically comes in the fall into the winter months. Well, if you live in Australia, you're just coming out of your winter months, and so you've already seen what your flu season looks like. And so each year we look at the the trends and the transitions between the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere. So to get back to your question simply, the flu is a virus. It is one that is seasonally affected. But amazingly so, we see it present even as early as September, which we have already seen this last month uh, for U.S. activity. It remains low at this point in time. But again, when we look at the underlying seasonality, it's difficult to predict. But many times we look at what happened the six months prior 
in the southern hemisphere as it impacts to the northern hemisphere. All right. And so when we talk about this year's influenza, what are we talking about? Well, it's great. So there's always a predictive piece. They try to look at what it uh, looks like as far as the spread geographically. And right now in the U.S. already, we have had positive cases in California and Arizona. We have positive cases in North Carolina, where I currently am located, as well as in Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, South Carolina. And so even though it's an early season, we start to see it. And it's not uncommon, but we typically see the larger increase, typically in that November, December, January, February window. Very difficult to predict. But the most important thing is is to be immunized early. You want to have your immunization completed so your body has the ability to adapt and create its immunity at least two weeks before the spread of the season. Uh, And so there's always the balancing act. Should I get it now or do I wait till December? Because some people fear that if I get it now, it may wane by January or February. The data would support, and according to the CDC as well, now is the time to get your immunizations. If you have it now, it will protect you. Uh, based on the selections that they have in that vaccination for the coming season. Now, that's always another question. How good is the vaccine? They use a scientific approach each year based on what they see in the flu season in the southern hemisphere, what we have had in previous years here, and they use you know the best science that they have to put together a composite vaccine that is predictive for what we anticipate having. All right. So um, in terms of who should be getting the flu vaccine, I mean, who are the people most at risk? And then, um, you know, I'm 51. I'm I only go to the doctor once a year because, you know, my my insurance provider tells me I'm supposed to. Uh, But I do dutifully every year go to my local drugstore and get uh, get a flu vaccine. And it's in part because I feel like I'm exposed to, you know, kids who go to school. I'm in lots of public environments. I travel a fair amount. I feel like I'm my exposure risk is high and I do not want to get the flu. Um, If somebody's kind of, you know, only at home and only exposed to their pretty much their own people. I mean, are there are there variances in terms of kind of who should get it? There is. And CDC recommends everyone under the uh, six months and older. Uh, should get the flu vaccine. But what we recognize is typically each year, those who have the higher risk illness from influenza end up being those that are at the extremes of age. If you're a young Mm. child uh, and or you're an older adult, now 51 is not older, as you and I well know, uh, but if we're looking at somebody in their 60s, 70s, 80s, those older patients oftentimes succumb to a much more severe illness. That is also true for our young children. And so when you look at the extremes of age, those are the, one of the top areas. But the CDC currently recommends everyone six months and older to be vaccinated routinely. All right, uh, Brett, let's cover one more topic. Uh, we've got like five minutes, so that should be uh, at least time for us to begin dipping our toe into this conversation. We have a study out now on physician-assisted suicide and just how dangerous these laws are for people with disabilities. So t- tell us what uh, the National Council on Disability has uh, as reporting. So the National Council on Disability really has been advocating against these suicide bills for a long time, really decades, because the concerns stem from this understanding that if suicide becomes legal, then some people's lives, perhaps, especially people with disabilities, uh, perhaps will be ending without fully informed or free consent. They may not understand the full information or the implications of what these laws may be, Uh, whether it be through mistakes, whether it be abuse, insufficient knowledge, or just the lack of the opportunity to have a conversation to understand about their illnesses, about their disabilities, and about what resources are there for their lives. 
you know, one of the things you'll hear is that these assisted suicide laws often tap the ability to provide what they will say is death with dignity for terminal patients. Uh, and one of the challenges is that many times this will hasten a death pathway uh, that people see as defined by dignity without really under addressing the underlying issues of a physical decline uh, such that the functional limitations and the perceptions of that individual is not actually based on anything other than a momentary decision to say, I'm not doing well at this moment, I'm not feeling well at this moment, and so I'm going to go ahead and make a choice to end my life rather than actually have someone who can support, provide information from a caregiver perspective and have the dialogue with them about what it, their current challenges are from an independence and from a life perspective. You know, this is a challenge really that many times we fail to embrace. Myself as a physician, it's very difficult for me to have these long, difficult conversations with patients. And many physicians aren't trained to do so in an age now where it is about seeing a patient effectively, efficiently in a very short window of time. As you can imagine, the dialogue around someone who's facing such challenges uh, takes a good duration of time, not just as an individual, but understanding the network around them, what their faith basis is, and the perspective of what they're hearing may not very well be true compared to the situation that they face. Which I just think highlights, again, the importance of my being in a relationship, uh, you know, maybe even with my primary uh, care physician, having that be a person who at least at some level shares my worldview or shares my understanding of life as a gift and understands um, my own pro-life. Like, right, I I feel like advanced directives are really important. That's another conversation that we could have. Um, I mean, I'm, I am pro-life from conception to natural death. And that natural death part of things is, uh, you know, is a challenge sometimes as well when there are folks who imagine that this life is all there is. Um, you know, they have they have such a great fear of death that they want to put it off literally at at any expense for as long as possible. And so I do think these are complicated and complex ethical and moral conversations. And we're increasingly having them as if they are only, I don't know, bi biological and chemical conversations as if life is uh, is only a physical reality. That's absolutely true. And you will notice there's a tendency in our society to equate disability with being a burden and to be demoralized such mm. that people basically be feel defeated. And so they're seeking for assistance. And as you stated as well, the level of acceptance and recognition and understanding of what their health challenges are is not a disability. It is not a burden. It is truly the situation that they're challenged with and is very difficult. But for somebody to come alongside them and embrace them and recognize those difficulties allows them to understand the value proposition of who they are and understand perhaps how their disability or challenge that they may have actually brings value to those around them. For them to be able to tell their story is a whole lot greater than for them to feel demoralized and for them to feel that they are now a burden on society. Uh, I think we need to switch the dialogue. We need to embrace it. At the same time, rather than looking for it, what is not going to be an easy out, but it seems to be one. All right. If you are listening and you are looking for um, some equipping in this area, I'm going to direct you to Johnny and Friends. That is a, a partner ministry of, of Johnny Erickson Tata, and it's just J-O-N-I, johnnyandfriends.org. If you want to become more fully equipped to have these conversations, these critical conversations with people with disabilities um, who might be led to believe by the world that they're a burden, uh, Johnny and Friends will help not only you, but them see themselves as a person who is a true gift of God to the world. Brett, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. We're going to encourage people to check out what you guys are doing at the Christian Medical and Dental Association, cmda.org.
righty. We, um, we are going to talk with Alan Fadling. He uh, and his wife, Jim, are the co-authors of What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. So let's start with that. This is God's work in you. This is God's work in us. This is going to be a conversation about transformation. It's going to be a conversation at the heart level. What what does it look like to actually change a human heart? So it's one thing to change the ideas in my head. It's another thing to uh, change my outward behaviors or the appearance of change. It's another thing for there to really be a heart transplant, a real change of heart. Um, so we're going to talk about that next with Alan Fadling. He is the author of Unhurried Living and a number of other books. But today we're going to talk about his newest book, What Does Your Soul Love? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, so some of you are uh, are asking uh, about subject matter that we maybe have already talked about here on air at, at an earlier date. And so, first of all, I appreciate that when the headlines capture your attention, you say, hey, Carmen, can you talk about this? Can you talk about Drag Queen Story Hour? Or can you talk about, um, you know, the the changing rates of marriage among the next generation? Or can you talk about, like, on and on? Well, sometimes we have already talked about that subject matter. And that doesn't mean we won't revisit it. But it does mean you can go get the podcast that's related to that. You can either go to MyFaithRadio.com to the Mornings with Carmen page, or you can um, come to my ministry website, which is ReconnectWithCarmen.com. Might be a little easier if you just type in ReconnectWithCarmen.com and the actual words that you're looking for, like drag queen, um, every time that I, literally every time that I have talked about that subject, those um, podcasts and articles and blogs and other resources will pop up. And so just going to encourage you to do that. Go to ReconnectWithCarmen.com. Uh, type in the word that you are interested in hearing more about or maybe seeing if we've already talked about it in a prior show. It's possible I have interviewed an author on the topic. If so, it's going to populate right there on the screen and you can click on it and listen or read. So there you go. Uh, my ministry website, reconnectwithcarmen.com or go to the My Faith Radio site on the Mornings with Carmen page. We'll be right back. A teacher once asked her students, hey, what's wrong with grown-ups? A little boy answered, grown-ups never really listen because they already know what they're going to say. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Most teens talk, not because they need to communicate important information, but because they're just trying to process life. And many times we respond to their thoughts with negative comments. And after a while, they just quit sharing. Mom, Dad. Are you able to listen to your teen without trying to correct her or trick her into giving the right answer? If not, it's time to polish up on your listening skills. Your teen doesn't always need your input and judgment, and she's not asking for an opinion or a solution. All she really needs is a listening ear. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. I know I told you that I was going to be talking with Alan Fadling about his new book, What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. But 
he's not answering. So we are not going to talk about that today. And maybe he is having a wonderful, restful uh, time with the Lord. And so we are going to um, talk about some other things. And so uh, I am I am typing a question into uh, my own web browser now. Um, and then I'm going to bring you up to date on how you can be praying for me and my family today. I told uh, everybody at the top of the hour, or maybe it was the top of the first hour, I can't remember now, uh, that Matthew is going to be having, you can either think of it as unscheduled surgery. Matthew is my 14-year-old stepson who has some very special needs. Um, His condition is called APERTS, A-P-E-R-T-S. And so he has these facial cranial deformities that over the course of time they have been surgically repairing. Uh, And so in August, you may remember that we had surgery for them to implant some artificial bone in the holes in his skull. And uh, his body has decided that that material is not welcome. And so today he is having, again, you can think of it as unscheduled or you can think of it as emergency surgery to remove all of that material that they put in there in August. Now, obviously, when they put it in, they intended it for be to for it to be in there permanently. <clears throat> and so um, prayers today, because I uh, anticipate that whenever the surgery takes place, it's not only going to be uncomfortable uh, for him, it's going to be anxiety producing for us. And so we are seeking to be anxious about nothing and in all things, present our concerns before the Lord, trusting the Father who created Matthew in his image to not only be guiding and directing the hand of Dr. Kelly, his uh, his surgeon, but everybody else who is in that room, the anesthesiologist and those who are uh, attending in every other way to surgical, uh, you know, I don't know all the details. I'm so not a scientist that this is not my area of expertise. But loving this kid is a real area of expertise for me. And so uh, I want you to be praying with us and for us. I also am mindful that many, many people who are listening right now have uh, have a family member who is in in a period of life, in a stage of life, in a life experience where um, there's a chronic medical problem or challenge. And so my heart goes out to you. Um, I was sitting yesterday with Matthew waiting, uh, waiting to get a room at Vanderbilt. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there and there are, you know, there's people who they've just, it's literally the worst day of their life. They have just gotten the worst possible news that they could ever imagine getting. And the answer to that question, what's the what's the worst possible thing that could happen? What's the worst possible um, news you could get? You know, that's different for everybody. And it really depends on the news that you happen to get. And I remember the conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago with Kathy Branzell about how we can prepare in prayer now for the news of tomorrow. Remember that conversation? Remember how Kathy talked with us about how we prepare in prayer today for the news we're going to get tomorrow, I can tell you that I was able to respond yesterday to the news that Matthew is going to have to have this surgery today. I was able to respond to that without hysteria, um, really kind of as a matter of fact part of what we uh, what we do as a family in relationship to his ongoing medical needs. And I was able to respond to that in faith, acknowledging that his life came from God, he belongs to God, uh, that that God is the great physician that we are going to do everything that we can and that we're going to trust the rest to God. And yes, I know just how serious um, just how serious this surgery is. And you know just how serious the issues are in the lives of those whom you love best in the world. 
And you also know the feeling that I'm having today, which is powerlessness. When you are not in a position um, where you feel like you can do anything to affect the outcome. Well, let me just encourage you. You have great power because you have direct access to the Lord and the giver of life. By the power of the Holy Spirit and by the access that is gained for us in Jesus Christ, in whose death the curtain, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom, you and I have direct access to the Father. That's what prayer really is. It is you and I taking advantage of the access that is gained for us by Jesus and and listening to him and trusting him when he says, you pray our Father. Go ahead. You pray our Father, Abba, Father. You pray as a child prays. You pray acknowledging that the Father wants to give you only good gifts, that he has absolutely your best interests in mind, and he knows way more about you and what's ahead and the future of hope that he has planned than you could ever imagine. So be encouraged today in your life of prayer. Let us be praying today in anticipation of the news tomorrow. We're going to take a quick break. And uh, then when we come back, I'm going to touch on a couple of additional headlines for today. Okay, so I'll admit that I uh, have been reading. I read really widely. I read lots of headlines across lots of news outlets. I, uh, I read the New York Times and the Washington Post. I read the Atlantic. Uh, I read National Review, and there are a couple of podcasts that I listen to every day. One is The Briefing by Albert Moeller, um, which I, I feel like is an intellectual feast, but uh, other people, uh, you, may, you may find it more, more meat than you want. But if you like what we do here um, and you want an intellectual feast version of what we do here, there's probably nothing better out there than Albert Moeller's Briefing. Um, he is the, the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And a, a really excellent worldview thinker. Um, so one of the articles that you know popped in my feed was uh, was this article about tipping, and and it's curious to me. I'm one of those people that I I would say I'm a twenty percent tipper. I sort of think that's the standard. I don't really know why I think that's the standard. I probably assumed that somebody told me that, and I took them at their word that that's what we were supposed to be doing. Well, come to find out. Especially a really wide diversity of opinion across the country uh, related to tipping, when to do it, who to tip, and certainly how much to tip. And so I was uh, I was reading this article. The American system of tipping makes no sense, and it's posted at the Atlantic. If you're interested in it, here um, here here's the sample question. Uh, it's Sunday. You order coffee and a simple breakfast, eggs, bacon, and toast at a local diner. The service is efficient but not memorable, and the bill comes and it's ten dollars. What's the tip? So just think for think think about that for a minute. Uh, you've had a ten dollar bacon, egg, toast, and maybe coffee breakfast. What's the tip? Well, uh, typical online guides for foreign travelers in America say it's fifteen percent, and so it's a dollar fifty. According to the Washington Post, it's at least twenty percent, which would be two dollars. And the New York Times says it's a minimum of a three dollar tip. And that's not based on percentage. That's based on um, what they view as what would be fair to tip a server um, in in New York for the time that they invested in serving you. Um, so I, I just ask yourself, like, you know, for a $10 breakfast, what's the tip? Paul Perot, 
you're listening. I yes. know. Yes. What's the tip? On a $10 breakfast, what's the tip? At a local diner. Well, I usually would do, and it depends on the service, how quality mm. of the service. I mean, okay, if it was exceptional, yeah, I'll go over. I kind of use 18%, believe it or not. Mm. I go between the 15 See, and that's 20. See, that's, that's, that math is too hard. Okay. I'm not doing it. Yeah. That's 18%, why, that's, that's, that's yeah, why that's we crazy have calculators math. on our cell phones. Oh, well. <laughs> 18%. You with the hard math. Way to bring the hard math to the morning show. But again, um, it comes down to how good was the service. I, you know, that line that they said about their time to serve you. What? No, that's what their job is. Now, oh, if they do see? it well, because mm-hmm. they're already they're, you're getting paid to ser- they're getting paid by their employer to serve us. But if they serve me well, then I'll go higher. So uh, I've done a little research on tipping. And... Um, the word, I didn't know this, the word comes from, comes from a phrase, to ensure proper service, tips, to ensure proper service. Now, if you were going to offer a tip to ensure proper service, you would give the tip before or after the service. Well, you'd give it before. If I were trying to ensure that I were, was going to get actually exceptional service, I would tip the person in advance of the service. And they would need to judge the tip to be worthy of serving me in an exceptional manner. And so I got to thinking, like, when do we tip in advance of service? And there probably are times that we do that. Um, If you've ever seen anybody, uh, you know, tip the person who decides who actually gets the next table, um, that person who, uh, who is making cash up front in the process at a crowded restaurant, um, that's a tip to ensure proper service. The gratuity is what you give after the fact. So you're showing your gratitude uh, in a gratuity. And sometimes the gratuity is already listed on the bill. So why bring all of this up? Well, because we as Christians, you know, I want us to be, uh, I want us to be seen by the world as people who are uh, very grateful and thankful. I think that we need to be the most thankful people, particularly when others are serving us, um, and because we understand what those acts mean and what that is all about. Uh, you and I serve one another without the expectation of remuneration in, in many cases. And certainly we do not do our jobs well in order to get tips or gratuity. We do them with excellence because we're doing them um, as unto the Lord. We're really not doing what we're doing as Christians for the praise, adoration, or even paycheck that happens to come with the labor we perform. And so I want, I want us to, as Christians, think about the excellence with which we do whatever we're doing, whether we're getting paid or not. Um, we may actually work harder and with more zeal in volunteer service for which we do not get paid. I'm thinking here about like mission trips. Actually, we paid to be able to work. We paid for the privilege of serving someone else. That's what kind of what a mission trip is. And so I want you to think about that for a moment. The excellence and energy and money that we pour into having the opportunity to serve others versus how we treat people who are serving us as their occupation or in their occupation today. Um, and so uh, this is just really a, an opportunity to think more uh, and think more carefully about why we do what we do in terms of, um, in terms of our money tips and gratuities, tips in advance to ensure proper service, gratuity after the fact. And then I do think this leads into a consideration and conversation about tithing. 
if my if the first fruits, if the first um, you know, if if the bounty of my life is not first unto the Lord, then what am I doing? I mean, where is my gratitude? Uh, and there again, I know that there are a litany of reasons that people uh, rationalize for not tithing, but I want to encourage you to consider, just consider that question today. Um, you know, consider whether or not we're really giving God his due. And you say to yourself, well, I could never give God his due because everything that I am and everything that I have and everything that I do really is to to him and to his benefit. Yes. And we are good stewards of the manifold grace of God in our lives as conduits of those resources into uh, the life and ministry of the church in order that more and more people might uh, might know the gospel and experience the gospel reality that's brought to bear by the by the body of Christ in the world today. And so just a, just some thoughts there this morning on tips and gratuity and tithing and money. I don't know, maybe you are, um, maybe there's a reason that God wants to provoke that conversation with you uh, here today in the last week of October as we head into a season when we celebrate abundance at Thanksgiving and then when we like to give abundantly at Christmas. And it's probably a good time to be setting the budgets for, um, for both, a budget for Thanksgiving How am I going to set a budget for Thanksgiving? And then how am I going to set a budget for Christmas and the gifts that we're going to give? All right, we'll be right back. So um, thank you for those who have texted in. Apparently my, uh, my, my prompt for tip is not accurate. So I'm awaiting the response of the person who knows what the accurate prompt for the word tip is. Apparently it's not to ensure proper service. Okay. And then uh, I'm hearing from Sheila uh, encouragement. Um, Yes, always. We always give more if we publicly pray over the meal and we always publicly pray over the meal. So it's a part of a witness and a testimony. Uh, And then she adds, um, sometimes we ask if the server has any prayer requests. Okay, so do we. That's actually a part of our rhythm and pattern. I love this example of the way that we can positively impact the world and touch people's lives. So all, all you have to do is simply just say to your server, you know, after the food comes, but before you pray, hey, we're actually going to ask a blessing over this meal. Is there a particular way we can pray for you? I have never been declined. Um, sometimes it's just an absolutely broad-smiled uh, declaration of, yeah, just 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 say thanks to God for all the good things, or um, yeah, my life is you know my life is blessed, and and I just want to. Uh, I just, I'm grateful for that. Um, Other times, man, there is this, uh, you can actually see the need that they have been pressing down in their heart. You can see the the thing that is... um, that is living right below the surface of the outward appearance of their life for which they need desperate prayer. And uh, and I have been amazed. I have been amazed the things that uh, people serving us have been willing to offer up uh, it, knowing that we would pray for them. All right, so that's my encouragement. Pray for your servers in addition to showing your gratitude monetarily. This has been Mornings with Carmen. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.